This morning, we've arrived at one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. Many of these verses have been quoted throughout the centuries, both by Christians and non-Christians. They've been used by, uh, during religious services and non-religious ceremonies. Um, they've been printed on everything that you can think of, everything from cards, frames, jewelry. You might even have some of it posted in your house. Some people have even tattooed them you know, on themselves, tattooed some of these verses on themselves. Um, well, you get the picture. What I want to do this morning, though, is to, is to show you what this chapter really says by dissecting it as much as I can with the time that we have together. Now, I have seen and heard some pastors spend several weeks on this chapter. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not that there's nothing wrong with doing series on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But I just think a long series on love can sometimes be exhausting. Just imagine, and maybe it's different with you, but with me, I just like one big hug rather than a long extended you know overly extended hug you know I just you know I appreciate one big um, meaningful hug and that's what I'm gonna try to do rather than extend it for too long I'm just gonna give you give it to you straight Warren Risby wrote few chapters in the Bible have suffered more misinterpretation and misapplication than 1st Corinthians chapter 13 Divorced from his context, it becomes a hymn, of, a hymn to love or a sentimental sermon on Christian brotherhood. Many people fail to see that Paul was still dealing with the Corinthians' problems when he wrote these words. The abuse of the gift of tongues, division in the church, envy of other people's gifts, selfishness, remember the lawsuits, impatience with one another in public meetings, and behavior that was uh, disgracing the Lord. I agree with G. Morgan uh, or G. Campbell Morgan when he wrote, "Examining this chapter is like dissecting a flower to understand it. If you tear it apart too much, you lose its beauty." So I hope by the time we're through here, is that you'll understand this: the only way spiritual gifts can be used creatively is when Christians are motivated by love. So let's open up with the word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you on this amazing, wonderful Sunday morning in August. Lord, I pray that this message will speak to the hearts of everyone that's here, everyone listening, everyone watching, Lord. And then you'll show them again a better way what that better way is. Lord, that anybody that's struggling with love, anyone that is having a hard time understanding or knowing what that truly is, that this message will, will clarify that. So pour your spirit in this room, Lord, so that people's eyes, hearts, ears may be opened. Speak to us powerfully through your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, before I begin reading, I just want to mention a couple of points for you to keep in mind. 
Firstly, chapter 13 actually begins from the final verse of chapter 12. And there it says, And I will show you an even better way. With these words, Paul introduces the love chapter, where the focus will be on the love, on love and not the gifts. What he's saying is that the gifts are merely ways we can express and receive love from God and love from one another. It's a better way because love thinks of others, not of self. It's wonderful to see a believer who is unusually gifted by the Holy Spirit, but it's still more wonderful when that Christian uses his gift to build others up in the faith rather than, than to attract attention to themselves. The second point I want you to think about is when you read the word love throughout this chapter. Here in this particular version that we have, that we use here at this church, the CSB, love is mentioned 10 times in this chapter. And in each time, Paul uses the ancient Greek word agape. Now, agape is defined as a deep feeling of affection. This is deeper, this is much more meaningful than that brotherly love. It's much more, meaning, much more meaningful than that passionate love. It's much more, meaning than, much more meaningful than um, loving an object or loving you know, your house or your dog. It's, it's much more deeper than that. Agape love defines our relationship with God and dictates how we should treat others. David Guzik put it this way, it is a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a love so great that it can be given to the unlovable and unappealing. It is a love that loves even when it's rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. The word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Okay, so now that I've mentioned those two points, and again, they'll keep those two points in mind as we read this chapter. Uh, let's begin reading from verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to, to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is, per, is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
and endures all things. After having discussed the topic of spiritual gifts, Paul now teaches them how and why love is more important than all these gifts. In the first three verses, he uses five spiritual gifts in order to illustrate an identical principle. Without love, the exemplary use of a particular gift, and it could be any gift, profits a believer nothing. For example, even if a person could speak in all languages, human and angelic, but didn't use this ability for the good of others, it would be no more profitable or pleasant than the clanging, jangling sound of metals crashing against each other. Now maybe some of you have been to some churches where it, appears almost, where it appears almost everyone is speaking in tongues and no one understands what anyone is saying. Well, what Paul is implying here is that when, where the word is spoken, where the spoken word is not understood, there is no profit. It's just a bunch of noisy voices contributing nothing for the common good. For tongues to be beneficial, they must be interpreted. And even then, what is said must be encouraging and uplifting. Now as a side note, Paul may have used the term angelic tongues figuratively to describe um, exalted speech, not necessarily an unknown language. Now if you were to go through any story in the Bible, whenever angels spoke to men, it, was, it wasn't a common speech. It was, they spoke to people in a common language that people understood. Now I'm not saying that angels don't have their own heavenly language. I'm just saying that there's no evidence that there is in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Now he also mentions that even one might receive marvelous revelations from God, understand great mysteries of God, have tremendous truths revealed to him, and be given heroic faith which is able to remove mountains. If these wonderful gifts are used only for one's own benefit and not for the edifying of the other members of the body of Christ, they're of no value. The holder is nothing, meaning the person is useless to others. Even if he, and this is, I'm talking about Paul here, gave all his goods to the poor, or gave his body to be burned, these heroic acts would profit him, um, would, wouldn't profit him, unless they were done in a spirit of love. If he were merely trying to attract attention to himself and seek a name for himself, a display of virtue would be valueless. In order for the Corinthians to grasp the concept that without love, spiritual gifts are worthless, Paul teaches them the characteristics of true love. He begins by informing them in verse 4, two things that love is patient and kind. 
patience or long-suffering here means enduring under provocation. It's maintaining a heart of love. Even when, tho even when those you love have wronged you or aren't loving you back. Yes, you may have to set up some emotional and physical boundaries, but your love for them must always be sincere. Patiently trusting that the Lord would rat will radically transform their heart. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. And as, and as hard as it might be, being patient will require, will require you to be forgiving. Therefore, and that's why, again, it's just so important that you be persistent in prayer. Because that could be the hardest thing to do sometimes, is to be forgiving. Love is also kind. Kindness is doing what is good for the interest of others. I believe Christians would be better witnesses in this world if it were to examine well-meaning activism through the lens of agape. Whenever we voice our support or opposition to a cause, we ought to ask ourselves if what we're saying or doing in the name of righteousness is kind. Love is long-suffering. Yet while it's suffering, it doesn't become cynical or bitter. Love must remain kind. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 tells us, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also, or just as God also forgave you in Christ. So now that he's told them what love is, he states a total of eight things love is not. The second half of verse, or verse 4 tells us three of them. Love does not envy. Envy is one of the least productive and most dangerous of all sins. It accomplishes nothing except hurt. Love keeps its distance from envy and does not resent it when someone else is promoted and, or someone else is blessed. Love is not boastful. The word boast here refers to the negative sense of bragging about oneself. Someone who isn't boastful doesn't have uh, to have the limelight or the attention on themselves to do a good job or to be satisfied with the result. Love gives because it loves to give. Not out of a sense of praise, it, it can have from showing itself off. Love is not arrogant. To be arrogant is to be conceited and self-focused. And it speaks of someone who believes that they're better than others. Well, love doesn't have a big head because it focuses on the needs of others. 
someone who isn't arrogant, understands that whatever they have, whatever they've been given, is a gift of God. And therefore, they, have, they shouldn't have anything at all to be arrogant about. Now in verse 5, Paul gives us five, five more things love is not. Love does not behave rudely. If a person is truly acting in love, he or she will be uh, courteous and considerate. Now, honestly, I think all of us as believers, we all at one time or another have been rude and inconsiderate. However, what should mark us distinctly different from unbelievers is recognizing when we're rude and asking and actually making an attempt to ask for forgiveness. Love isn't self-seeking, but is interested and is interested in what will assist others. I mentioned last week um, that there's people in the church that are serving for self-promotion purposes in order to get some kind of special recognition. Well, true love doesn't do that, but instead serves so that others will benefit. This goes back to the point Paul made in chapter 10, verse 24, where he said, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Love isn't irritable, but is willing to endure slights and insults. Now, I'm not certain uh, that we've all found, I'm certain that we've all found ourselves feeling irritated by an annoying person. I mean, all of us have maybe come across somebody that, whether it's a family member or whether it's a coworker, um, whatever it may be, a, a classmate, that they're just so annoying that they irritate us. I mean, if you were to ask Robin, I'm sure she'd tell you that sometimes I will irritate her. Even my kids, I'm sure, I'm, my, my dumb jokes and all that stuff. But again, um, there's people around that do irritate us. Now, feeling irritated is a natural human emotion, emotion. However, that emotion becomes sin when we allow that annoying person to trigger us. In that state, it's almost impossible to do anything in love. I've learned, and believe me, I, this is something I'm still working on, is to walk away before you do or say anything you'll regret later and just ask the Lord for peace. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. This means putting away the hurts of the past instead of clinging on to them. Now this is a huge one. This is often a big problem among friends and family members, but especially within marriages. The question is often ask, asked, should I forgive and forget? The phrase forgive and forget is not found anywhere in the Bible. However, there are numerous verses commanding us to forgive one another. Forgiveness is a decision of the will. Since God commands us to forgive, we must make a conscious choice 
to obey God and forgive. Of course, it is impossible to truly forget sins that have been committed against us. We cannot selectively delete events from our memory. The problem is many people nurse their wrath and keep it warm. They brood over their wrongs until it's impossible to forget them. Now, although forgiveness involves not holding a sin against the person any longer, I also believe forgiveness is different from trust. I think it's wise to take precautions, which may mean that sometimes the dynamics of a relationship will have to change. But being cautious doesn't mean that we haven't forgiven. It simply means that we're not God and we cannot see the person's heart. Therefore, if by forgive and forget, one means I choose to forgive the offender for the sake of Christ and move on with my life, then this is a wise and godly course of action. One of the great arts in life is learning how to forgive those who have wronged us as much and as much as possible forget what is behind and strive towards what is ahead. Now in verse 6, Paul gives us one last thing about love that love doesn't do. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. There is a certain mean streak in the human nature which takes pleasure in what is unrighteous, especially if an unrighteous act seems to benefit oneself. And what I mean by this is that there's a tendency to see somebody or see what somebody is doing and be like, man, I hope they fail. I hope they miserably fall on their faces so that I can do it myself and shine brightly. This is what it's talking about here. This is not the spirit of love. Love rejoices with every triumph of the truth. So now that he stated what love is, isn't, and doesn't do, in verse 7, Paul explains what love does do. Love bears all things. May mean that love patiently endures all things, or that it hides the faults of others. The word bears may also be translated covers. Love does not necessarily publicize the failures of others, though it must be firm if godly uh, discipline is necessary. Love believes all things. That is, it tries to put the best possible construction on actions and events. Let me ask you, when someone you've never met approaches you and informs you of something, do you have the tendency to give them the benefit of the doubt? Or do you automatically dismiss them and say, forget you, I don't know you, I don't, you know, I don't trust you? Uh, this is, again, another big one. Let me give you an example. If you've never given me a reason to doubt you or not trust you. If I just met you, 
I'm going to believe your motives and intentions, regardless if they're good or bad. I, I'm not going to know. And this is the thing about, again, this is why I need good people around me because, you know, they, they can tell me usually uh, to be careful. But me, I'm just that kind of person that will automatically give you the benefit of the doubt and trust you if I just, again, met you. Again, I have to otherwise, or else I'd always be paranoid, doubtful, and cynical, and really, honestly, I, I, I don't want to live my life constantly feeling that way. It's a horrible feeling. It's just a stressful, stressful feeling. However, if that trust has been violated, I know that I have a couple options. I could resent and never trust you again, even after you've asked for forgiveness, which unfortunately many people do because it's the easiest option, it's the easiest way. Or I could forgive you and allow you another opportunity to regain my trust. Now yes, this option is the hardest because it's going to take a little bit from you as well. It's going to take a lot of work to regain that trust. So because love believes all things, as Christians, we must make every effort to be people of honesty and integrity. You know, yeah, let those, those people eventually have to be accountable to God. Hold, you know, God's going to hold them accountable for their words and their actions. But we don't have to be the same way. You don't have to be the same way. You can be people of honesty and integrity. You could be a woman, a man of your word. Not just among ourselves, but among those that we interact with on a daily basis outside these walls. Love hopes all things in the sense that it earnestly desires that all things work out for the best. Love endures all things in a way of persecution or ill treatment. Now, although these eight characteristics of love can teach us a lot about the meaning of love and how to love, we mustn't forget these three key aspects of this passage. Key aspect number one, without love, whatever spiritual gifts God has given you is worthless. And I mentioned that already. Each thing, each gift described in verse, or each thing described in verses one through three is a good thing. Tongues are good. Prophecy and knowledge, prophecy and knowledge and faith are good. Sacrifice is good. But love is so valuable, so important that apart from it, every other thing is useless. Sometimes we make the great mistake of letting go of what is best for something else that is good, but not the best. Key aspect number two, the best way to determine the weight of a person's gift or gifts is by seeing if they display these characteristics of love mentioned in verses four through six. Did you know that we can minister our gifts in pride. 
I can preach for, fra for fame or success or glory or prestige. I can even preach to be accepted. You can minister your gift for the same reasons too. You can minister your gift because of peer pressure or uh, to have somebody pat you on the spiritual back and tell you how great you are. There are a myriad of other reasons or motives that we could, ha that we could have for ministering our spiritual gifts. But there's only one that's legitimate. The sacrifice of ourselves to the will of God and the sacrifice of our, li of our lives to the needs of our brothers and sisters. That's the only legitimate reason. Nothing else matters. Any other reason adds up to zero. Zero. Without sacrificial service, you are nothing but noise, a banging gong, a clanging cymbal. Key aspect number three. Jesus Christ perfectly exemplified how to use our gifts in love. As you read, or going back to verses 4 through 7, you can see the blessed Savior of men moving about in this world on his mission of love. So true is this that you can substitute the word Christ with any for the word love here. Let me show you. Christ is patient. Christ is kind. Christ does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Christ finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in truth. Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is indeed a character sketch of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells me that not only, not only as Christ dwells in me, that I will manifest these characteristics and that I can truly say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's move on with the, the rest of our reading this, this morning. Again, picking up in verse 8. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection in the mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 
having described the qualities and characteristics uh, character and ca that characterize, I'm sorry, those who exercise their gift in love, the apostle now takes up the preeminence, the preeminence of love as contrasted with the temporary character of gifts. And I'll explain that in just a second here. He informs the Corinthians in verse 8 that rather than overemphasizing the actual gifts of the Holy Spirit, their emphasis should be on love. Why? Because love never ends. Throughout eternity, love will go on in a sense that we will still love the Lord and love one another. Prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge will one day all vanish. Why? In heaven, there won't be any need for prophecy because everyone will be perfectly comforted, edified in heaven, and uh, no longer will the need, will no longer need and will no longer need to be ex exhorted. Unknown, tongue, unknown tongues will vanish because everything will be known in heaven. And words of knowledge will be swallowed up in the perfect knowledge we'll have when we see Jesus. In this life, our knowledge is partial at best. And we all know that. We don't know everything. And so, and, so our and so our prophecies. The truth is, there are many things we don't understand in the Bible, and many mysteries about God that haven't been revealed yet. Therefore, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are appropriate for the present time, but they're not permanent. In all reality, they're imperfect gifts for an imperfect time. Paul says in verse 10 that, that when that which is perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. So the question is often asked, what is that which is perfect? Though some believe that the miracles uh, gift ceased with the apostles, say it refers to the completion of the New Testament, they are wrong. Virtually all commentators agree that that which is perfect is fulfilled when we're in the eternal presence of the perfect one, when we're with the Lord forever. On that day, when we reach the perfect state in the eternal world, then the gifts of partial knowledge and partial prophecy will be done away with. Paul then uses the analogy of childhood and adulthood in verse 11 to explain the contrast between our present understanding and the understanding we will have in the next age. This life we now live today, right now, may be compared to childhood when our speech, understanding, and thoughts are very limited and immature. Whereas the heavenly state, when we get to heaven, the heavenly state is comparable to full adulthood. When believers get there, our childish condition 
will be a thing of the past. He then points out in verse 12 that as long as we're here on this earth, we see things dimly and indistinctly as if we're looking in a blurry mirror. Not a bloody mirror, a blurry mirror. <laughs> Heaven, by contrast, we will be seeing things with absolute clarity, without anything between, between to obscure our vision. Our current flawed perception of Christ will be made complete in eternity, will we, where we will know him and see him face to face. On that day, the need for spiritual gifts will have vanished, and so, and so the gifts will pass away. The gifts of the Holy Spirit will be overshadowed by the immediate presence of Jesus just like when we turn off, turn off the house lights when the sun is out. Paul also points out that, our, that currently our knowledge is partial, but in heaven believers still have a better, still have a better and fuller, fuller knowledge of God, just as we were also fully known. Now, even in heaven, we're never going to have perfect knowledge. We're not going to have all knowledge. Only God does. Only God has uh, perfect knowledge, all knowledge. Only God will always be omniscient. However, our knowledge when we get to heaven will be vastly greater than it is now. Chapter 13 then ends with Paul stating that of the three principles of moral characteristics of, Christ, of a Christian, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Why? Why is the greatest of these love? Because while we're alive, it's the most useful to others, and because love will continue to abide in eternity. You see, when we're in heaven, faith and hope will have fulfilled their purpose. We won't need faith when we see God face to face. We won't need hope in the coming of Jesus once he comes. But we'll always love the Lord and each other and grow in that love through eternity. Spiritual gifts, no matter how exciting and how wonderful, are useless even destructive if they're not ministered in love. And the only way spiritual gifts can be used creatively is when Christians are motivated by love. You see, the main evidence of maturity in a Christian life is a growing love for God and for God's people, as well as a love for lost souls. If you're a Christian, serving in any capacity, whether it's in this church, somewhere else, in the community, and you're serving in the name of Christ with using your gifts, it's important that you regularly evaluate how you're exercising your spiritual gift. Are you using your gift in the power of the Holy Spirit 
with the motive of love? Or are you selfishly exercising your gift without love and the energy of the flesh? I encourage you to answer this question by spending time in prayer and asking God to make you sensitive to the times when you are attempting to exercise your gift without love. I'll close with this wonderful quote from H.A. Ironside. May God give us to manifest the love of Christ through yielding ourselves wholly to Him, that He may live out His life in us, and then by and by when faith has changed to glad fruition, when our most wonderful hopes have been accomplished, when we stand face to face with our blessed Lord, love will abide throughout all the ages to come. And we shall understand then what we cannot understand now, the love that moved the heart of God to, and led Him to send His only begotten Son to this dark world that we might live through Him. What a wonderful thing to know Christ. Let us go out and live and live Him before men. Let's close in prayer. Again, there's just so much here about love and, and we thank you that even in this short passage, this short teaching, Lord, that you've made things clear to us about love. We do. We ask that we go out there and serve with a true agape love and not for selfish reasons. Lord, at times it's hard, Lord, and it's difficult to love others. And, but only you can show us. Only you can give us that strength to be able to love even the most difficult of people. Lord, we want to represent you. We want to be good examples of you. Lord, if there's anyone watching or listening and they haven't received you, I pray that you will put it, put him in, put it in their hearts to receive you, Lord. And if that's you, you're listening or watching and you're ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Wherever you're at, close your eyes and with a sincere heart, pray this. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I have blown it and I have sinned against you. So I ask for forgiveness. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. So now I give my sins over to him, Lord, to be made new. Fill me with your spirit. 
Lord. Fill me with your love. Help me to walk with you all for the rest of my life. Thank you again for sending Jesus. I believe in him and I trust in him now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, I pray for those who prayed that. Keep them safe, Lord. Surround them with good Christians. May they find a good Bible-believing teaching church. They may learn your word. And I pray for everyone here that is having, maybe having a difficult time loving, maybe struggling with that, how to love, Lord. Again, may they go back to these passages, these words, and see exactly what you're trying to tell them, Lord. And may this message have spoken something to them. Give us a heart of love, Lord. Bless us next time. Bless everyone here, Lord. Keep them safe throughout this week. Bless their friends, their families. And we look forward again to being together next week and studying more of your word. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.